and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Charles Duhigg is a best-selling author. I first found out about him with his book, The Power of Habit, which is all about the science of habit formation in our lives, companies, and societies. It is a must-read if you're interested in productivity or effectiveness or maximizing your potential. His next book, Smarter, Faster, Better, is all about productivity, so I highly recommend you check those out. In today's conversation, we weave a lot of what Charles has learned with those books into our conversation, and we talk about his future book, his next book, which is all about connection. Uh, So it's really interesting because we talk about even how Charles has come to see the world from a habit lens, from a productivity lens, and from a connection lens as well. He currently writes for the New Yorker magazine. Previously, he wrote for the New York Times, and he is someone who just 
thinks, thinks deeply about how humans can thrive and how we can flourish and how we can be our best. So he really dives deep into the science and the research whenever he is uh, writing and, and sharing what he's learned. And he is someone that should be on your radar if he's not already. I've gotten the pleasure to learn about him and get to know him also on a more human level. And I've enjoyed conversations with him. And we start today's conversation talking about uh, his dad and how his dad has helped him see the world in a unique way. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Charles. So here is Charles Duhigg. Charles, thanks for coming on the podcast. Shout out to David Epstein for really connecting the two of us. I'm going to see David later tonight, so I'll give him a Oh, good, good. You. Say hello for me. Uh, but where I thought we'd start is uh, when we were at a retreat together, you shared something with me and a, a small group of people that really made me think a little bit more about my relationship with my dad and my relationship with anyone who isn't here anymore. And the way I heard it, and I'm sure my memory is is fickle and and not completely accurate, but the way I heard it was you said something along the lines of your relationship with your dad continues to evolve even though he's passed. Um, so I'd love to get your perspective on that. Did I butcher? No, that? not at all. But share how you how you. Yeah, not at all. I, I think that's that's exactly right. In fact, I was just thinking about this because um, uh, another guy I know, his father just passed away like two weeks ago, and. And the thing that I've found, I'll say two things. First of all, so my father passed away in 2018. Um, he was 89 years old. He had a great life, and it was a good death. Like it, it, it was, it was fast and relatively painless, and um, and so we we were really lucky in that respect. And and I think there's there were like these two things that surprised me. Number one is, it's it's obviously sad. It's also really interesting. And when you have someone like a parent who dies other people don't ask you about it, right? Because it feels like they're intruding or it's too personal or maybe they'll say the wrong thing. They don't know what to say. But at least for me, one of the things that, that happened was this was this was by far the most profound and the most interesting thing that had happened in the past year, right? Or longer. And I wanted to talk about it. Like I wanted to like, I wanted to talk about my dad and I wanted to talk about like what it was like. And, and because it was interesting and it was, it was special, right? It's it's an important part of any person's life when their parent dies. And so that that has really shaped since then how I react to other people when they tell me that they've had had a loss in, in their family or the loss of anyone. I usually ask them, like, tell me about the person. Like I, I like what were they like? Because it's fun to remember these people that we love. And that that was the other second thing, as as you mentioned, is that. I kind of, I guess in the back of my head, I figured that like once my dad died, that our relationship was over. And it's, I mean, it obviously is for him, but but for me, it's actually totally different. Like your relationship with this person continues for the rest of your life and, and it changes, right? Like, like I find that, you know, like like all sons, I think if you had asked me about my father before he he had died, I would have I would have told you the great things about him and the things that drive me crazy. And and he you know he keeps on calling me and asking X or like he did Y with his money and that doesn't make any sense to me. And then and then when they're gone, you you remember the purest form of them. Like you remember who they are, not necessarily even at their best. But how they saw themselves, I think, becomes the predominant memory. 
And that's really wonderful and powerful, right? That like, that like you, you understand them in some ways better when they're not there anymore, because I don't even know why for reasons I'm sure a psychologist could understand better than me, but, but you understand them differently and you understand them in some ways better. And, and as a result, you understand your own relationship with them differently and better. And, and I, I see it now, like I see it as I raise my kids, like these things that, that my dad did for me that I try and do for them. And I'm very conscious of the fact that like, I am trying to replicate what he did and, and I'm so thankful and he was so successful at it. And, and then other things were like, you know, I try and replicate that and it doesn't work. And I think to myself, like, how, how would my dad have dealt with this? Like, how, how did he interact with my siblings in ways that like, that like, I wish I could ask him now, like, what did you do when you, when you ran up against this? So it's, I, I guess, and, and let me just also say, I have friends who have had their parents passed away and it has been much more traumatic and it has been much worse. But I do think that this is what, when we think about death, we think about it as the worst thing that could possibly happen to us. And I think that that's wrong. Like, I think that like everyone we know and love at some point is going to die and we might die before them, but this is just literally part of life. And, and embracing that and saying like, look, like there's good and there's bad. I don't think it demeans it. I think it actually elevates it. It's interesting. Before we started recording, I was telling you about how I went to Hungary and visited my grandma's roots and she passed in 2018 as well. And uh, before that she had dementia for a while. So it was definitely like time uh, for her and my grandma, even though she saw the worst in humanity during the Holocaust, lived a very optimistic, grateful life, um, sort of an American dream life. And when I went to Hungary, I cried my way through that country. I was just like puddles of tears that came out. Not even, I mean, of course, when we saw things about the Holocaust and um, saw like somber museums and monuments but i would cry when i saw joyous things too about how her life she would probably be proud of what's starting to blossom again in hungary um in what was taken away from her and it got me thinking about my own identity and how i don't often talk about my grandma and her experience in the holocaust because i haven't felt like i've had to live the same trauma that she did i felt like I've lived a very privileged American suburban uh, life. And yet at that trip, what changed for me, and I spoke about this on a podcast, was that it's my responsibility to own her story to a certain extent. And um, I'm wondering for you, like what part of your father's story are you owning going forward? What part are you living and and how does it shape your identity? You know, um, I mean, in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, I would say, and there's so many that like, I can't even describe all of them, but, but I think that one of them in particular is he just really liked life. Like he really, he enjoyed being alive 
And, and it is so easy to not enjoy being alive. I mean, honestly, in some respects, the more successful you are from like the, you know, a financial perspective or career perspective, the, 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 the less enjoyment you get from life. Cause you're, I mean, we all love our work, but like, then you get to a place where like you work all the time, your reward for being good at your job is you get to do it constantly and ceaselessly. And, and I think that one of the things that I carry from my dad is that, is that you really genuinely have to decide how you define success and then commit to that and, and, and embrace it and celebrate it. Right. It might not be other people's definition, but that's okay. Like if it's your definition and it's genuine, then like really like just invest in it completely. And I'm, I guess I'm thinking about this right now because over the last couple of weeks I've been looking at um, what's known as the Harvard grant study or the, the, uh, the Harvard study of adult development, which is this like hugely longitudinal study that started in the late 1930s. And they followed people throughout their entire lives, um, both Harvard undergraduates, as well as um, people from the South Boston tenements who were essentially impoverished. Um and they followed them their entire lives and they they surveyed them every two years. There was a big gap when they didn't do it. But but like what's what the big takeaway from this? So I've been looking, I've been talking to the people who run the study and I've been looking at some of the source documents and looking at some of the early reports. And the language and conclusions has changed a lot over time. Like we we think of it as like there's one central insight. But actually, there's a lot of different insights. And some of the insights over time, people have been like, actually, that's less true. And some of them that people have said, oh, that's more true. And it has a lot to do with just kind of like as much to do with contemporary society as, as getting this data. But there is one thing that has been consistent, which is in the early years, they called it love. And today we call it warm adult relationships and connections. Throughout time, the people who are happiest and most successful and who live the longest are the people who just have the strongest relationships, right? Who just like lean into and invest in those relationships. And that does not mean the same thing for everyone, right? For some people that means I go to church and we all really believe in Jesus. And we talk about like, we talk about like, you know, very judgmental things, but we have sort of a fellowship in doing so. And for other people, it means I have a huge family. And for some people, it means I have a huge I have a lot of friends, but the point is that for all of these, we find real genuine meaning and satisfaction from connections. And I think that's the thing I care for my dad. You know, my dad had 10 kids and, and by many measures, he was not, you know, he was successful, but he wasn't overwhelmingly successful. He's a lawyer in Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, you know, he's not the most prominent lawyer in Albuquerque and he was, and, and outside of Albuquerque, I don't think anyone knew who he was, but he had this community that he invested in and they invested right back. And like that, that genuinely made him happy his entire life. And so that's kind of what I take from him is, is I want that. Where do you find success? Where do you find those connections? So I think those are two different questions, right? Like, so, so if you asked me how do I define success, what I would probably say is like, oh, well, I'm writing another book and I really hope it sells, you know, you know, millions of copies and, and, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a great source of comfort for me that when I look at my bank accounts, so they're large enough that I don't have to wor like worry too much about how we're going to feed our kids. Um, so, but I think, 
I think the, one of the things that's happened is that I've, I've very deliberately started defining success as connections and, and where do I find my connections? I mean, look, I have a job and, and you know this cause, cause you know this, like I have a job where literally I sit at a computer all day and many days I will not talk to another human being except my wife and kids, right? Like today I'm literally spending all of today editing and except for this conversation, I will not talk to another person who, who does not have my last name. And, and so, so when it comes to connection, I feel like I really have to force it. Um, and so one of the things that I do, for instance, like we have this thing called drinks with journalists. Like we started like, I guess 10 years ago now where um, because I'm a journalist and I like other journalists when I'm in New York and now because I'm in the, in Northern California, we do it in Northern California up in, up in Oakland. Um, we just send an email and we say like, Hey, look, come if you're a journalist, come have a drink. And like the list for the New York one is like 1600 people at this point. Like it's huge because people love to show up and hang out with other people. But I spend a lot of time making lunch dates and calling people and asking people if they want to do a zoom conversation and X and Y and Z and flying to places because somebody's putting on some random event. You know, the, the guy who's now running that Harvard study, um, um, Bob Aldinger, who's who's a wonderful human being. Like I asked him what he had learned from running the study, and he said he just works really hard now to to keep up connections because it's super easy not to, right? It's super. And by the way, if you call someone and you haven't talked to them in six months, the first three minutes is going to be awkward. Right. You're going to be like, what's up with you? And they're going to say something boring. And you're going to be like, they're going to be like, what's up with you? And you're going to be like, well, I have kids. Right. Like our lives don't change enough for like a, every six month checkup to be like it's super exciting. But if you make it through those three minutes and start talking about something real, you're going to love that conversation and you're going to feel better re renewing that co connection. So I know you moved to Santa Cruz and when we met, I believe you talked about surfing being a big part of your life. What does surfing give you um, that you don't get when you're writing? What What is being in the ocean and being in the water and, and being uh, uh, surfing? Surfing's what, the best. Um, and I will say I'm like the world's worst surfer. I like started surfing when I was in my thirties, like late thirties. And I'm a really, really bad surfer. So when I say that I'm a surfer, what I mean is like, I will go out for an hour and maybe like catch three waves and get up on two of them, right? So like people shouldn't think, people shouldn't think I'm speaking from like, but this is what I love about surfing is that first of all, I'm not really a great athlete and I'm not a very like physical person. Um, when you surf, you have to be really, really in touch with the water around you. Cause what you're doing is you're basically waiting for the right wave and then figuring out how to enter that wave and catch that wave. Right. And so you have to be hyper, hyper aware of what's going on in the water around you. And, and that hyper awareness, I think is kind of like a form of Zen or like, it's a little bit like what, when I'm meditating, what I feel like, and I don't meditate that much, but I, I really, I always benefit from it when I do that, that you're in this place where you're just very focused on this moment and and there's something really rejuvenating about that. And, and, and what you're focused on is this thing that's so much bigger than you, right? Like the ocean and waves and how the earth moves and what the moon is doing. It's huge. It's so big that you can't, we can't even hold it in our brain. And just to, to force ourselves to tap into that a little bit 
feels really rejuvenating to me. I feel like I, it's, yeah, I'm it's the only time in my life that I feel like I'm like graceful. I, I, which I'm not, I don't look graceful. I've watched videotapes. I don't look good, but I feel good. Yeah, I'm wondering about connection in terms of nature and um, beyond other humans and the ability to be connected to nature. I know for me, when I'm in the woods or I'm on the beach or I'm in the mountains or I'm skiing, um, there are times when I feel connected in a different way than how I feel connected with humans. And people will describe me as an extrovert. I kind of reject the whole introvert extrovert thing, but that's a story for another podcast. Um, but I love having space with nature. Um, so I, I think about that when you were talking about connection, I was thinking about your connection to, to surfing. Yeah. Well. And I think my wife feels very similarly to you do that you do. I, I don't in general, like I, I'm not, I'm not a nature person. I, I appreciate it. Um, but I think that's actually one of the reasons why like surfing is good for me is because it's a little goal oriented, right? Like I, I get bored when I just like take a hike. Um, although, although now that I live in Santa Cruz, I enjoy it more, but, but it's not something that I would ever be like, I would be like, I need to hike once a week. Um, and the nice thing about surfing is that it is like, it, it it's, it's easier for me if I have like something to focus around. You mentioned satisfaction and, and like having a sense of satisfaction and perhaps focusing on that more than happiness. And University of Pennsylvania, there's a lot of science and psychology and books that have been written about happiness. For me, I don't know where I stole this from, probably somewhere along the way, but I started shifting away from happiness and more toward this notion of wanting to feel alive and go toward experiences that make me feel alive, which by the way, include pouring my eyes out through the streets of Hungary um, and just the range of emotions and understanding that emotions, all of them are meant to be felt at different points and can be useful or can be harmful. When you think about satisfaction and fulfillment for you, obviously you mentioned writing a book and getting it out there. Um, where else do you get satisfaction or fulfillment from in your life? So the way I think about it is sort of contentedness. And I think that I, I think there's there's obviously some things that happen where the contentedness is kind of, I guess pastoral is the wrong word, but like it's something like that, right? Like when I'm, there are these moments when I'm with my kids and I just feel like happy and so proud of them and so, so loving. And like, I think that's a form of contentedness that's really powerful. But I, I, I also think, and then there's times when I work and I'll spend a day writing and I just feel like I actually like let something out or I said something new or I just got it done, right? I feel like I accomplished this thing that I wanted to accomplish. And, and there's a sense of contentness or satisfaction from that. But there's also a form of contentedness that comes from intensity. And I think that's what you're talking about, about walking, walking through the streets of Hungary, which is I like to have a certain amount of intensity in my life. Like I think... I think intensity is really interesting and exciting and very satisfying. And the problem is as you get older, intensity tends to become something that happens around negative events, right? You get a cancer diagnosis. That is very, very intense. It's not fun though, right? <laughs> like like you're, you're at a funeral or you're worried about your kids. You know, there's that, there's that moment after your child is born. I'm sure you experienced this where like, you're effortlessly alive. Like you're effortlessly aware and so in the moment, like you don't even have to work at it. And as, a, as an aside, it's the same thing that I felt when I was in Iraq, like I was a war correspondent and you feel that way in a war zone. And, and in a war zone, it's bad. And with your 
child after he's born, it's good. And so one of the things that I've tried to do as an adult is I've tried to find opportunities for intensity that are either positive or neutral so that I'm not just waiting for like the cancer diagnosis. Um, and so for me, what that means is, first of all, that can mean intense conversations, right? Like you find opportunities to have really like kind of intense, meaningful conversations, which does not mean that the conversations always go well. And it does not mean that they are always safe, right? But that's okay. That's part of intensity. Um, the other thing that I do is like, so we moved to Northern California two years ago, almost three years ago now. And um, I went to Burning Man last year and I'm going again this year. And this is like the most Northern California thing I can say, right? Like most people think of Burning Man as like just naked people and drugs. And it certainly has a fair amount of naked people and drugs. But the thing I really like about it is it's super intense. Like you're in the middle of the desert. There is there is nothing. You can die. right? <laughs> like You have to plan ahead of time. And then, and then it's just this super intense experience. It's also very positive and very rejuvenating people having conversations with each other, being vulnerable with each other. Um, you meet people that I never would have met otherwise, but more importantly, you're in this completely equalizing environment. And so the, the conversations you have with those people are very different than conversations that I would have anywhere else. And so I think I have tried to find ways to not only have this contentedness, the satisfaction but also this intensity. And I think that lines up with what you were saying with it, trying to be more alive. It's interesting as I'm listening to you talk, as of now, we've been very philosophical, esoteric, talking about life, talking about death, talking about emotions. And it's not lost on me. I'm talking to the guy who wrote the book on habits. He wrote uh, a book on productivity. And you started this conversation by saying that the more successful we have, or we are, often the busier we get or the, the more we're expected to continue to go at a certain pace or at a certain rate for you, how do you navigate some of the pitfalls of success and the desire for people to have your time or your mind or your resources or your energy? How do you manage that and still make sure that you're living not just a productive life, but a life that is meaningful for you? I mean, I, so I think the key word there is manage, right? That it's an ongoing active job because i think one of the things that happens and i think i think this is pretty natural is we say like how do you do work-life balance like how many hours should you be working a month or a week or what should your priorities be and and what happens is when we get we, we make a choice and then when we stop making that choice that's when we get into trouble right we we continue acting on this decision we made a month ago a year ago 10 years ago and without reconsidering the, the the question. And so I think one of the things I try and do is I spend a lot of time second guessing the choices that I'm making. I commit to them once I make them, but here's a good example. So like I used to give a ton of speeches, right? And giving speeches is amazing. They like pay you insane amounts of money to show up and have and and babble, and then people tell you how smart you are. It's the greatest thing on the face of the planet. It's like it's like a it's like a, a magic trick. It's and and so there was a period when I would give as many as thirty speeches a year, um, and that meant that I was getting on a plane basically every five or six days, um, and it was great. I made a ton of money. And, and, and I got to meet a lot of interesting people and it's fun to have people tell you that you're smart and laugh at your jokes. And then the, then the pandemic came and it all stopped. 
And I was so much happier. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like there's so much less stress in my life. And it it doesn't feel like getting on airplanes should be that stressful. I was flying first class, right? Like that was in the contract. But like there was just something about knowing that I had a plane in four days and I'd have to sort of do around that. And it meant that like, you know, I was a little tired and cranky because like I knew I was going to be tired the next day. And then you'd come home and you're like sweaty and gross and you just like, it takes, a you know, 12 hours to recover. Like the thing I learned was I am way happier not doing that many speeches. Now, that being said, I'm writing a new book right now. When the new book comes out, knock on wood, hopefully there's going to be tons of people asking me to give speeches. And you know what? I will say yes. I don't know. I might do 30 speeches in a year because like, but, but I, I want, but, but, what I do is I try and make sure that I'm making choices to do that, right? That I'm sitting down and I'm saying, look, here's the costs and here's the benefits. And I think the benefits outweigh the cost right now, but in a week or a month or a year or next hour, I might think differently. And I need to keep in touch with that part of my brain that allows me to know like, nope, now it's time to change. So it's constantly checking back in with yourself to figure out, is this actually filling my cup? Is this actually, is it juice worth the squeeze? Uh, Cause sometimes it is. Yeah, oh, sometimes totally. we, we, sometimes it is. There's a question that I get asked often. I want to get your opinion on this and you can put your productivity hat on for this, this question. And it usually comes like I'm in the psychology world. And so uh, the generation above me, traditional psychologists, they fill their day. They see client after client after client, and that's how they operate. And that's how they work. I realized I had mentors who did that, that that was not going to be my bag or my jam. And I like creative pursuits and I like to see a client one hour and then the next hour talk to you and the next hour, maybe I'm writing and the next hour I'm creating something. I'd like diversity. But this question gets asked to me and I don't know how to respond. And it is, it's always awkward. They say, are you busy? And I know why they're saying it. They're trying to find out like, how's everything going with work? But when they ask me, are you busy? The tr- I want to look at them and say, <laughs> my goal isn't to be busy. Yeah. My, my goal is to be doing things that I'm intentionally excited about. Maybe sometimes I'm doing X, maybe sometimes I'm doing Y, um, but busyness isn't like the end goal for me. I'm curious to get your perspective on this idea of busyness because it seems as though a lot of our society tracks success and aligns it with, are you busy? And I'm wondering like how we got to this place where busyness is seen as like the end all be all for what productivity looks so, like. So there was a time when busy and successful were synonymous, right? Like, like basically until the 1980s, if you go back and you look at like the economic data and you look at pe- people's diaries, like from as they live through kind of periods of upheaval, what you see is that busyness and success usually have a, com- a completely one-to-one relationship. If I'm, if I'm a surgeon and I get paid for every, you know, body I cut open, the more bodies I cut open, the more I'm getting paid. <laughs> so, and, and honestly, if I'm a surgeon, you know, in the 1950s, there's not a lot else I could do with my time besides hanging out with my kids. And so maybe I say like, I don't want to do more than eight surgeries a day or a week or whatever. I don't know how long it takes to do a surgery, but, but I think that starting in the 1980s, something changed, obviously having to do with the Silicon revolution and the computer, the computer industrialization and being busy actually became very divorced in some cases from um, being successful or being productive. So 
you know, if you could spend all day replying to emails, you could get to inbox zero. I would argue for almost all people that is a complete waste of time and is actually counterproductive, right? And in fact, the more emails you send, the more you're going to get. So one of the things that I do, for instance, is I do not care how many emails are in my inbox. And if you send me an email, I feel no obligation on how quickly I'm going to respond because I'm going to build it around my preferences like like you know unless it's something where like we're working together your invitation for a response doesn't obligate my response unless you're a reader i respond to all reader emails and so the, the reason i mention that is because i think that there are definitely periods where you love something and you become too busy at that thing right and and I think recognizing that is really, really important and valuable. But but if you feel busy and you don't understand why, I think it is a warning sign. It is a warning sign probably that you're not thinking deeply enough, right? So, so the takeaway from Smarter, Faster, Better is that genuine productivity has always come from developing cognitive routines that allow us to think more deeply, particularly when thinking is hard, particularly when we feel under stress or we feel like we're rushed or we have too few resources. The more you can get yourself, trick yourself to think more deeply, the better you're going to do. And the reason why is because you're going to decide to focus on the things that matter most and ignore the things that don't. And so if, and what's, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. What's your observation? You mentioned you know, the pandemic comes all of a sudden, maybe you're not flying, you know, 30 times a year and you're adjusting and you're changing and, and maybe it will look different uh, with your next book. Who knows? We'll see. But what's your observation of the pandemic and productivity? And, and obviously now, I mean, I used to do many of these podcasts in person and I'd fly somewhere or they'd come to me and it's, it's beautiful now. It's not even a question when I tell someone they're coming on the podcast. What's your thoughts on productivity and what we've experienced the last three what, years and, and what you've, observed I mean, I think in some ways any, any refresh, any forced refresh is great, right? Cause it just forces you to kind of like think more deeply to see things in relief. I will say, I do think it is really easy to overlearn some of the lessons of the pandemic about not being face to face. So like, you know, I, as I mentioned, I'm writing another book and, and because I wrote most of it during the pandemic, I didn't do a lot of in-person interviews and I really re like, I'm, I mourn that loss. I, it, it's really easy to fall into a trap where you think doing things over the phone is just as good as doing them face to face. And they're not like doing things face to face. What, what do you, what do you mourn about it? What, what do you regret? So, so I think that, well, well, this gets to the other thing I was going to say about the pandemic, which is, I think the pandemic is a great example of the serendipity tax. And this relates to this face to face. So I remember once I talked to Jim Collins, the guy who wrote good to great. And somehow this came up. He was like, you know, the way I came up with the idea for good to great is somebody invited me. He lives in Boulder, Colorado. He was like, somebody invited me to a dinner in San Francisco. And I didn't have any other reason to go to San Francisco, but I was like, no, oh, this dinner might be interesting. So I like flew to San Francisco for one dinner. And as I was sitting at that dinner, the guy next to me said, I really liked your last book. But what I wonder about is not like how do bad companies become good companies, but how do good companies become great companies? And that led to the good of good to great, right? And he was like, that was the best, the best investment ever was flying to San Francisco for that dinner. But, and this is the other thing he says, 
for the guy sitting next to me, that was a that was a waste of time. Like he didn't walk away with a great book idea. He like came to a dinner and he like gave someone a great idea and he didn't get anything out of it. And this is this maybe maybe, maybe right. we're maybe. conjecturing. Maybe you got to say I I talked <laughs> to Jim Collins, but but the point is that that if you want serendipity to happen in your life, you have to pay a tax, and that tax is a lot of moments when serendipity does not happen. Right, a lot of moments that are boring, and this is what happens when you're face to face with someone, whether it's to interview them or just even to hang out with them, is that you're side by side and you're taking a hike or you're talking to each other. And then there's this like pause and this silence. And if you're on the phone, you're like, okay, great conversation. Thanks. Hang up. But if you're together, you can't do that. It's rude. So as you're having that pause, somebody fills the silence and says something. And they say something that surprises you. And 80% of the time, you don't remember what they said. But 20% of the time, you look back on it and you think like, there's no question I could have asked that would have gotten us to that place. And it's only because we had time to hang out with each other and to observe each other and to pick up on all these nonverbal cues or both of us are reacting the same way to the environment we're in. We're hiking through redwoods. That stuff matters a lot. And you are right. Like this new world we live in post pandemic is super efficient. It's awesome to be able to get everyone on the phone during the pandemic. You knew everyone was at home. They couldn't dodge your calls and it's hard to get on airplanes and it's tough to like drive two hours just to have one conversation. But if you, a lot of really meaningful, special things that are unexpected happen when you're together. I love that. And, and I'm thinking about how we met and how we started this conversation about your dad. And I'm pretty sure that wouldn't have happened if, if I'd gotten connected to you and just said, Hey, do you want to come on the podcast? And maybe you would have said yes. And I wouldn't have probably found that on the internet as I'm doing research or in your book or, or whatever it might be. So I'm curious to get your perspective. Cause I'm trying to, for me, uh, I'm, I'm in my career right now. And I said yes to like everything for a long time. And I think that's a good thing. I said, yes, I saw things. I went, I traveled, I figured out what I liked, what I don't like. Now I find myself saying no to more things. And, um, I, I struggle with it a little bit because I can tell the other person's disappointed and I want them to be well-liked. And just yesterday I said no to something. I actually said no to two things that the person was asking me for. And it, it feels off for you how do you figure out what you're saying yes to and what you're saying no to? And I'll even, I'll even um, make this question more specific. David Epstein and I are hosting a retreat. Charles Duhigg, do you want to come? We both love your work. We think you'll add a lot of value. The retreat is going to be authors like you and sports right. leaders. Charles Duhigg says, I don't know Jack about sports. I'm not interested in it, but yeah, I'm interested in what the thought leaders have to say. Like, how did you decide to say yes to that opportunity? And then maybe that'll give us a sense of how you think about what you say. Yes. Yeah. To what you say so, no okay. To. So for, let me answer it in two ways. The first of which is, so when you're young, you say yes to a lot of things. And now you say, say yes less frequently, which I think is actually good. Saying no is very, very important. Right. Um, and I think of it again as, is the serendipity tax. Like, when you when you're young, you like pay taxes all the time, and and yeah, because like and it's and it's like you know you're only earning twenty five thousand dollars a year, so like <laughs> the ta the taxes seem like a big thing to you, but they're not that big. 
then when you get older, when you're earning like a million dollars a year, you want to earn, you want to pay less tax. If you're paying a hundred percent of your salary in taxes, you're paying too much, right? So you, so you find ways you ask yourself, like this tax is now more expensive. Let's just make sure it's worth paying. And, and by the way, if I pay tax on this opportunity, I'm going to have less time down the road for another serendipitous opportunity that appears. So I think it's good to say no. I'm not saying you should say yes to everything. But why did I say yes to you guys for the for the um, retreat that you had? I mean, honestly, I said yes because I like David Epstein. Because <laughs> I think he's a really good guy. I think he's really, really interesting. I basically just relied in, nor, entirely on his social validation, this, the social proof of it. And then, and then I guess... And the second thing was I put on a lot of stuff like that. Like I do this drinks with journalists and we had this thing called the large catered party last fall where all of our friends flew into Monterey and we did a pig roast. Like I do a lot of stuff and I know there are some people who are, are, are party makers and other people who are party attenders and party makers know what's really, really important <laughs> is when you put on a party like a core group of people say yes right away. Those people are super valuable. Like I love those people. And so when David said, I'm doing this thing, I'm kind of going on this limb doing this crazy thing. I was like, sure, of course I'll be there. Like I like you and supporting an initiative like this is important because I want people to support me. Even if, and this was true, I think for that retreat, even if it's not particularly rewarding for me right like like we went and like uh, i walked away kind of thinking i mean i really enjoyed it i thought you guys did a great job but i did walk away thinking like you know i met one sports person who i thought was really interesting and i'm glad i know him and that's totally worth it just for that but a lot of the sports stuff honestly just went way over my head and and um in part because i don't really care about sports so, so but like that's the point is that like when you pay a serendipity tax you're not guaranteed that it's going to be a 100% great investment, but you got to pay them if you want to get those great ones. So, all right, we're going to go into okay. this a little bit. So you study history yeah. in college, you then go get your MBA. So you're interested in business. So we've got history, we've got business, we've got journalism. You've talked about journalists and how much you like being around them. Look, you, you've been in, involved in journalism in a variety of ways. Uh, we've got surfing, which is a sport, yeah, by the true. way, but we're not going to get into that right now. Uh, you've mentioned meditation. Um, you've mentioned all of these interests. What is it about sports that doesn't? You know, okay, so you? let me be and let me clarify, because like it's only organized sports. Like for for whatever reason, I I just don't like watching the games. I like doing them. Like I like running. And I even like learning about running and I like learning about surfing. Um, and, and the people that I met at, at your guys' event who were sports professionals, I thought were fascinating. Like they were so smart they, and, they, and they were coming at these questions in such interesting ways that wouldn't have occurred to me. And so I was so, I, I really appreciated getting to hear them talk about the world. I just don't like watching sports. I don't mind it. Has that always has that always been the yeah. like, from a young age? Just was was your dad interested no. in it? Any family? No. And, it, and in fact, no, there, there is this really interesting research. So my younger I have two sons, and my younger son is super into sports. He loves playing sports. Um so there's there's some interesting research that was done about self-soothing, how kids learn to self-soothe. And in general, this isn't 
this is kind of unfair binary, but in general, some kids learn to self-soothe basically through reading, right? Like I can enter a fantasy world and I can get entranced by it. Some kids learn to self-soothe through physical activity, mainly sports, because it has because having a goal it makes it makes it easier. And I think that like I've actually, I mean that's an oversimplification, but I think I think it's a little true that like I basically learned to make my way through the world by talking and reading and analyzing. And my younger son, who hates reading, um, has learned to move through the world through sports and physical activity. And like, and like, it pays off. Like you, he makes friends really easily because they play sport. Because like, if you're good at sports, it's really easy to make friends. Way easier than if you're good at books, right? <laughs> and and it makes your it makes you really healthy as you get older. So like, I I don't know. And I I will admit this is like a totally perhaps unfair bias. It's just that I can't. I can't buy into the stakes around sports. And as a result, watching it doesn't entrance me. It's so interesting. I So I just went on this experience. It was with a Jewish organization. And I was talking to my friend who went to Jewish day school and keeps kosher and, and follows Shabbat and, and like lives a very Jewish life. I would say his identity is very connected to Judaism. And I said to him and I'm like, Oh, so what are your thoughts on God? He's like, I don't believe in God at all. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, so I'm about to eat this, you know, cheeseburger that's going to taste delicious. And you're going to abstain from that. And then on Saturday, like we can hang out, but you won't drive to come visit me um and your kids are are literally going to a school where they're learning about this stuff all the time and you are convicted that you don't believe in god which by the way i'm not like i just don't know where i stand on the thing i'm trying to figure out but i'm definitely not like i don't believe in god i'm like trying to figure this thing out and he's like no 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 no. i do not believe in god he was very clear on it uh and i spent a week with this guy we were roommates we shared like very close quarters together. We spent a lot of time together. And he said to me, and I was like, huh, I'm having a hard time understanding it. He's like, well, Brian, you love the Washington football team, right? Like you, you follow them. You watch every Sunday. Um, your kid watches it. You order food in like, that's the time. It doesn't matter if it's beautiful outside, like you're watching the games. And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, well, it's just a made up thing. And he's like, it's just some made up game that, we created and you've gotten involved in and back to your point earlier about connections and whether it's at church or whatever we're connected to, like you feel a connection to the other people that are cheering for that team and the city and how we're all rallying together. And he was saying, he was basically saying, that's how I feel about Judaism. Like I like that I'm part of this tribe yeah. and that I'm going to learn something about life and it's going to be philosophical and I have to be intentional about how I'm living and I'm going to, it's going to for, it's going to be a forcing function for me to be with my family and be with my friends and to think about what I'm putting into my body. And as he's, and he's like, but he basically thinks it's made up. He's like, I think it's a made up thing. That's why I don't believe in God per se, but I think it is healthy for me to, be a fan of that religion. And I started to be like, Oh wow. I now understand your perspective. So I don't know if that's helpful for no, you. No, it totally is. That's super duper interesting. And in fact, I would, I'm going to push it even a little bit further. Um, and, and let me say, by the way, I, I do think that my lack of interest in sports is like a personal weakness. Like I'm not proud of, I'm not proud of this. And whenever people talk to me about sports, I'm always fascinated and talking to them. Like I love like hearing them talk about sports, but, but I'll take it even a step further, which is, 
tell me if this is true. I think one of so I think about people who live here in Santa Cruz, right? Santa Cruz is like the most liberal place on the face of the planet. They have all these marches against Trump, right? And it's not like it matters. Like it's not like nobody's going to stop voting for Trump because they see some crazy march in the middle of Santa Cruz. Like they're voting for Bernie Sanders or the con- whatever communist is on the ballot. But it's really meaningful to, to them because it feels like fighting because democracy matters to them. And democracy is made up. Justice is made up, right? Like all these things that like I think are really, really important. They're made up ideas that we make true simply by believing in them. And by the way, even if I didn't believe in them, it wouldn't matter because I'm not influencing democracy or justice very much at all. And I think... I wonder if that's the same thing for you and the the Washington football team. Is that what we call it now? The Washington football team? It's really confusing. They're called the commanders. Okay, the commanders. The commanders. So so you and the commanders, like like when you're watching that game, do you find – does it tie into these more meaningful things, more meaningful values like justice and hard work and – and how we deal with like you know fate and the fickleness of of life like like is there a deeper meaning than just whether that guy catches that ball yeah i think i think initially it's just i enjoy watching it right so initially it's just entertainment and i enjoy it and i understand it if i go deeper there's strategy involved uh as a fan i don't control the outcome so i'm giving myself over That's to something that i don't actually dictate when i'm in a crowd i'm with strangers and i'm high-fiving and i'm part of a community and a tribe i've got nostalgic memories on sunday watching with my family and, and then eating chinese food for dinner and and it brings back memories like that um and most importantly i think it creates a sense of belonging it, it creates a sense of feeling like i'm part of a tribe which i think is what every religion uh ultimately is is doing for them their people as well and it's interesting i think same with a company if i work at google i'm part of a tribe and i i feel connected to that and of course i'm earning a salary and it's more complicated if i'm american or if i'm iraqi like you're part of something bigger than yourself and it's actually a good segue to i want to get a little more information on connection because it's fascinating to me that you have focused on productivity um with your first two books which in my world, it's similar. Like my first book is about your preparation mind and your performance mind and how do you maximize? And, and, and that's sort of where I was. If I were to write another book, it probably wouldn't be about maximizing. It would probably be something different um, in a different direction. To me, it seems like your interest in connection or um, connectivity or how we have great conversations, like where that all lives. It seems a little, um, I don't even know the right word. I don't want to say deeper, but it seems like it is um, on that adult uh, level. And, and as we think about like what the interests are, it seems like it is something that connection like that is kind of esoteric. It's kind of uh, big. It's kind of granular. It's not habits um, are like, okay, I know what a habit is. Like, I know that it helps me live a better life in ways, but connection seems uh, more, I don't want to say spiritual, but it seems like a there, there's going to be emotion more ephemeral yeah no i agree i i think yeah. that's a big part of it is that is that and i will say that like the book i'm working on right now which is about conversation and and connection um like the power of habit tries to systematize right it tries to explain like here's how here's how a, here's how to think about a conversation you can break it down into pieces um but i think to your point you're right that that 
that the goal, you know, when you're talking about habits, oftentimes your goal is very distinct and identifiable. Like I want to, I want to run three times a week. I want to run three miles every time I go out. I want to shave 30 seconds off my mile. When it comes to conversation, like one of the things that's really important is to be less goal or directed, right? The, to understand what the goals are and that the goals usually are trying to figure out what everyone wants out of this conversation. And so, so I think that you're right, but I also think it's a little bit of a, of a continuation. It, it's along a spectrum because the truth of the matter is that when we talk about habits or when we talk about productivity, it's very easy to focus on ourselves. But what we know about habits and productivity is that the other people around us have huge influences on our habits and on our productivity. And in fact, we would become more productive or we become better at shaping our habits when we do it in a community, when we when we enlist other people. And so I think that like this is a natural outgrowth of that because the stuff I'm working on right now, connection, is really about saying like, how do we how do we align and form a bond with other people that is more durable than just this one moment that we're talking to each other? And I think this gets into the same thing that we were just talking about, about the, the commanders and all the rest. Most of our lives, if you looked at it from the outside, most of our lives are just a series of unrelated moments, right? But we tell ourselves a story about our life. And we, and we endow that story into the things that we care about. So, so there is a story about the commanders and a story about sports for you that makes that meaningful. In that story, a story only exists when there's other people to hear it. We can tell a story inside our own head, but even when we're doing so, we're telling our, our second self that story. And so the, the creation of that story how we create it together, how, that is how we form connections. And that story is inescapable. We, it shapes everything about how we think and what we see and how we hear and what we say, even when we're not aware of it. And so the question is, how do we create a story that's more meaningful and deeper and more rewarding without having to be together all the time? And that's what a conversation is. And when you say connections, my mind went straight to social media. Like, who am I connected to on LinkedIn? Who am I connected to on Twitter, or Instagram, or TikTok, or Facebook, or whatever it is? As you're researching, and we don't need to spoil the whole book, but as you're researching, I'm curious about, you mentioned meaningful connections, and I'm wondering about where we're at as a society, where we're connected to a lot of people, but how meaningful- I mean, you're not really connected. I would actually say, like, we use that word, right? Because, like- Twitter taught us to and Facebook taught us to, but you're not really connected to them. You have, I I have 54,000 people that I'm connected to on LinkedIn. I can name probably a hundred of them, right? Those other, those other 49,900. Sure. There's like some little bit in a database, but I'm not really connected to them. I've never had a conversation with them. I couldn't recognize them on the street. So I think that like, when we talk about connection, like we can dismiss Simply because you go on Twitter and you see a bunch of people like shouting, you're not connected to those people. You can choose to become connected. You could have a conversation with them. You could engage with them. Or you could even just take one of their ideas and stick it in your pocket and then debate it with yourself. And the fact that you've never met them or talked to them doesn't mean th there isn't something there. But a connection is real. Like a connection isn't a social media thing. 
a connection is something that we invest in at least a little bit. And you probably feel it's, it's, yeah, it's felt. Yeah. It's, yeah. I think you feel yeah. it. I mean, I think you feel it. I think you experience it. I think it's something it, it, it creates something in your brain where you're like, Oh, there's a connection there. We're recording this and I'm thinking about artificial intelligence and how artificial intelligence could make us more productive and uh, in, in some of the work that you've done there. But perhaps there's going to be a lack of ability to connect with that technology. Have you given any thought to artificial intelligence and the the ability for it to be a productive animal, but maybe not an animal that can connect like humans? So, can? okay, yeah, I've, I've I've done a bunch of reporting on this, and and I would say I think one of the things is when we talk about productivity. I don't think simply getting things done faster is really productivity because if you're doing the wrong things, then it's not like it's not like you're making the world a better place or yourself a better place, right? Like so so simply simply automating something which AI does very very well is not actual productivity. In fact, it allows for more productivity because if I don't have to, you know, um I I don't use AI for this, but like if I don't if I don't have to grade every every student's paper because I can give it to the AI and the AI will grade it for me, that gives me more time to think more deeply about my research, right? So, but I think the thing is that like there have been these concerns about AI. I don't I don't think many of them are valid. Like like every so so some so as an experiment, what I would do with GPT three or or chat chat AIs, sometimes I'd paste in like the first half of a chapter and I'd tell it to write the rest of the chapter. And it wrote something that was super competent, right? Like I could have published that and and I don't think anyone would think that it was written by a computer. But it wasn't really surprising or interesting, right? The thing that I do, the reason I think people like to read my books is because you read three paragraphs and then paragraph four totally surprises you. Like I started a new story and you can't figure out how that story is related to what you just read. Or I come up with some idea where I'm like, you probably think the answer is X, but actually the answer is Y. Like surprise is what makes reading things interesting. And and GPT-3 AI is really bad at surprise. If you ask it to come up with something surprising, it comes up with something that doesn't make any sense, right? It's like, it's too surprising. It's totally unrelated. Or... Or it's not actually surprising; it's boring. They, I just did this um, this conversation with Jennifer Egan, who wrote uh, wrote um, the Candy House and a Visit from the Goon Squad. She's this wonderful novelist, my favorite novelist, actually. And someone asked her about AI because we're in Northern California, and she basically said, "Like, I have no problem if AI starts writing novels. Like, the more good novels that are written, the better, whether it's written by a human or by a computer. But I also just don't think it's going to write novels as good as I write. And I think she's right." It's interesting. I, I I didn't think I was going to talk about sports as much as I have with you. I talk about sports a lot with podcast guests I've had on. Uh, Charles, I think, might take the cake for least interested in sports of the 320 episodes we've done. But you hit on something. That is what I love about sports is surprise. Like we are in the middle of March Madness. And the whole idea of March Madness is that you don't, you don't know. know it's awesome, right? Like even I, and it's the best. Even I know this. Like Princeton, Princeton is like is having a Cinderella moment. Like it's amazing, right? Like, so that's that's the draw. Is that I don't. There's always hope. There's endless 
it is an endless stream of opportunities and of hope and the surprise of your team's supposed to suck, but they're playing the game yeah. and we'll see what happens. And to me, that sort of mirrors life. Like we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. It is a constant surprise to your point earlier, the intensity of not knowing sometimes even the negative things, but those are surprises in, in life. That was what I struggled with most during the pandemic was a lack of surprise. I, I couldn't see the new restaurant opening up. I didn't know what we were doing. I, it was like the same thing over and over again. And I struggled to see novelty. And at least for me, I like to create things because it feels novel and there's a surprise. I don't know how it's going to turn out. And that excites me. And I'm not an adrenaline junkie. I'm not someone who like wants to jump out of planes and bungee jump and all that, but I like novelty and surprise. Yeah. So um, it's, it's really interesting. You said that. All right. I'm going to just give the listeners some of the power of habit stuff just so they have sure. it. So Charles is, big framework that he shares in that book is this idea of a cue uh, and a reward and how those really drive routines. So if you want to learn more about habits, definitely check out The Power of Habit. That was when I certainly first found out about your work and it was seminal to my work oh. with athletes because they were constantly trying to create habits that would help them perform better. And that cue routine reward cycle is just etched into my memory and it's super simple, but super powerful. So highly recommend people do Thank that. You. And the other big thing, the other big memory that I have from the book is that 40% of decisions are habits. And I think it was a Duke study yeah. um, that found that 40% of our decisions are habits. So it's just, it, it really had me thinking about what am I doing to create habits? And the piece that I wanted to get your thought on uh, was thinking about habits from a weekly standpoint or a daily standpoint or a monthly standpoint or an annual standpoint. Because for me, what I've found in my life, because I like to do a lot of different things, I'm not necessarily great at daily habits, but I am good when I think about my week mm -hmm. and I'm able to stretch the habits. So exercise, for example, which I struggle with, um, I'm able to, I see a trainer twice a week. I play basketball once a week. So I know I at least get like 30 active days a week. I'd like to do more, but like when I stretch it out over the week, I, I have some flexibility there as far as what I can achieve. The podcast, my newsletter, these are weekly occurrences that I have some space so I can go play over here and be flexible or, or go out to dinner or go do this. Any thoughts on weekly habits versus daily uh, and, and how you've seen that play out in, in your research? So, so the way I think about it is, is less than tying it to time because i think you're right i think a lot of people find it's not even it's not even that you're more of a weekly person than a than a daily person it's probably that the habits that you're focused on are just much more naturally slot into weekly patterns than daily patterns right like if i asked you like do you brush your your have your teeth brushing habit that's probably a daily one right you probably do it multiple times a day and and it 100%. and it wasn't hard for you it's not hard for you to do you, you, it's not like you're like well i could do it twice a week but every day is really tough but but i think what's happening is that the habits that you're focused on the ones that you're you're thinking about fall into a more natural weekly cadence. Here's the thing that I would say is a better way to think about it is rather than trying to prejudge the cadence of a certain behavior is to ask yourself, how can I build implementation intentions around this, right? Like if I want to exercise more and if, if I want to exercise three times a week, like what are the cues that I build into my life that 
that spur that behavior. It sounds like for you, you have an appointment with a trainer, right? Like that's a pretty, that's a pretty natural forcing function. You're going to lose that money and he's going to yell at you if you don't show up. And so I think rather than thinking about the time scale of habits, what's more valuable is to say, what is my goal? And then what are the, what are the implementation tensions? What are the cues that will trigger progress towards that goal? Because you certainly could exercise every single day if you wanted to, but it would mean that you would have less time for other stuff. And so my guess is that your goal is, I want to be somewhat active, but I don't need to be constantly active. Now, the, re the, the reason I mention all this is because when it comes to mental habits, usually we don't engage in this, right? Usually we let mental habits emerge on their own with their own cadence. We lose control over them. So like an interesting question is, how frequently should you get angry? If the answer is never getting angry, that's not realistic. But if the answer is, I shouldn't get angry more than once a week, or I should only get angry when, you know, it has to do with like spend at myself for spending too much money, then then you sort of have this like mental framework around it, right? And if you find yourself getting angry twice in a week or three times in a week, it's this wake-up call to be like, look, like actually I'm letting this mental habit run roughshod over me and and I want to be in charge of this habit. That's, I think, much more That's valuable. That's really good. And I love the phrase, do you have it or does it have you? So do you have anger or does anger have you? Do you have sadness or does sadness have you? Do you have jealousy or does jealousy have you? Do you have alcohol or does alcohol have you? Do you have smoking or does smoking have you? Do you have exercise or does exercise have you? Um, and that came from a mentor of mine for for many years. And I put that in that framework because I think it is, it, it requires some intention. And um, when it has us, we can be addicted and, and it can also just lead to negative. Totally. And, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is obviously like a huge strand now of, of like how pe of treatment, like basically says like, look for those cues and like, don't let it have you right. Like come up with an alternative habit to engage in when you, when you see a cue that usually causes you to become angry or usually causes you to become sad instead grab onto that and use it to say, I'm going to take three deep breaths now. And then three minutes from now, if I'm angry, fine. But like, but I can probably like, I can, I can probably do it in a little bit of a healthier way. I think, I think everything, look, Everything about life is just about like, how do we, how do we take more control? I mean, that's actually the, the thing that like, I think has interested me my whole career is, is there are all these forces in life and some of them are malicious, like corporations that do this. And some of them are natural. It's just biology or it's psychology. There are all these things that we do or that we're pushed to do that we don't choose to do. And oftentimes you can get more control over your life and be happier simply by having someone stop you and say, look, you can make a choice here. Like you don't have to be angry. I understand it's hard to not be angry, but let's come up with a plan to help you avoid it. And once you know you have that choice, you might choose to be angry or you might choose not to. Yeah, and choice was a big part of your book, uh, Smarter, Faster, Better, and talking about autonomy and and how people crave autonomy and crave choice and how that impacts our motivation. Um, I want to close with with this, which is I feel like we did some justice to power of habit there. I wanted to make sure we did that. Uh, we just we talked about smarter, faster, better. 
but the next book is going to be around conversation and connection. So it's not lost on me that we just had an hour conversation and hopefully a connection. Um, what feedback would you have for me to make this conversation and this connection stronger based on what you are studying and what you're reading about? That's a really good question. I mean, so I will say, I think it's a little bit different because I think that um, I asked you, I asked, I didn't ask you that many questions like you and, and like, you know, I've been on your side of the microphone a lot. Like, like this is kind of a conversation, but it's, it's probably more like an interview in a conversation. What you're really trying for is you're trying for this simultaneity, this, this sort of neurological synchronization. And, and the only way that happens is through a lot of reciprocity that you, you need, you basically need people to sort of like give each other an equal measure what they, what they deliver themselves. And so I would say if this was a real conversation that, that we should have had more like back and forth, more like talking over each other, more interrupting each other, more you ask me a question, then I ask you a question, which would have been, I think, more natural. Like that that just happens in a conversation. Whereas in a forum like this, like um you're in a place where you're thinking about questions and you're thinking about how to, how you're eventually gonna like, you know, shape this. And so you need a you should need a certain arc. I'm basically just like saying, like, look, I'll go wherever you lead, but I'm not gonna ask them any questions because it doesn't occur to me. Um so that's that I, I wouldn't say necessarily this is exactly a conversation, but I think I think in as much as it was a conversation, I think you did a really good job because because the other part of it is like following the other person's lead. Like you're you're like you're building a boat together as opposed to separate from each other. And I think you do an excellent job of like following listening and then kind of following where things are going and inviting other people to come along with you. Beautiful. So that's where we will stop. Uh, Charles, if people want to find out about your future book, about your past books, uh, I know you're on Twitter, but I think you're not. Uh, yeah, I've actually, there. I've actually, um, since it's ownership, I've decided not to, uh, I have a, I have a difficult time supporting what's happening right now on Twitter. Um, but the, if you just Google me, just Google Charles Duhigg. I have this website. And if you sign up for my newsletter, I'll eventually send you the newsletter. Um, and, and you know, I write for The New Yorker. And so get a subscription to The New Yorker. Um, yeah. And, and, if, if, and if people Duhigg. do email me, my email is charles at charlesduhigg.com. I can absolutely promise if you email me, I will reply to your email. And you just might have to wait a little bit, but I, you threw that in there earlier. He's like, I, I absolutely respond to readers, which I was going to ask a question, but then we let it slide. Yeah. Maybe it's a conversation. Well, yeah, go ahead. No, no, Maybe every single, so like, so like if, if some random person emails me and they're like, would you like to invest in like, you know, do you want to, me to help your webpage? I don't feel any obligation to respond, but anyone who's an actual reader of mine, like I, I have a solemn duty like you gave me some of your time and some of your money like that, that impl implies some obligation on my part. So when people email me with a question or oftentimes people just email me to say like, I read your book and this is how I used it in my life. Like I absolutely respond and say, you know, I thank you for sharing this with me. That like, congratulations. 
It's beautiful. So everyone email Charles and tell him <laughs> how much you you love his books. Uh, but charlesduhig.com is where you can really find out everything. It's a great website. It's got everything you need. Uh, I am on Twitter at Brian Levinson. And then LinkedIn is the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Charles, thanks so much for coming on and looking forward to being in person and me connecting too. with me too. you. Let me know about uh, the next time the retreat happens. Let me know. I'm there. Even with my despair, disparaging of sports. <laughs> We're working on it. No, you did great. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Simply because you go on Twitter and you see a bunch of people like shouting, you're not connected to those people. You can choose to become connected. You could have a conversation with them. You could engage with them. Or you could even just take one of their ideas and stick it in your pocket and then debate it with yourself. And the fact that you've never met them or talked to them doesn't mean there isn't something there. But a connection is real. Like a connection isn't a social media thing. A connection is something that we invest in at least a little bit.